This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wood, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal Cast and YouTube. All right, guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal Cast. We have a special treat for you today. So, in our episode a couple weeks ago, where we talked about these are the things we're going to try to bring in changes we're going to try to make for our third year we mentioned an interview series with some vendors so our first interview is someone that both of us have worked with yes. in the past uh he's been in the industry for a while and you you just when you first met him you said he was a backpacker yes uh i met our interviewee when they were backpacking in the midwest so it must have been my first grand prix detroit and they were just starting a podcast called brainstorm brewery and uh, this person, uh, there, uh, there was a small joke, and I, I forgot to, to ask them about it, about JSS Elvish Champions, I want to say. And so if you see them, ask them how the collection's going. And the one thing that I will always remember and keep with me is the Psyduck they left in my binder from a trade we did when we first met because that is or was their calling card it was a, a fossil edition psyduck that's uh that's good i i first met our guest i uh, was actually pretty recent in the last couple of years and he was i'd seen him periodically you know across the room at 95 who he mm -hmm. worked for said hi to him whatever and just had a friendly professional interaction but actually like sat down with him and got to know him in the last couple of years and he's one of my favorite people in the industry it's Ryan Bouchard, also known as at Cripple Command on Twitter, uh, on Moto and Twitter. So you can find him there. Yep. So with that, let's get started with the interview. All right. What up, sir? So uh, how you been? How's uh, how's life? Surviving. Uh, hold how's, up how's your store again? Uh, still not open. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so like that's on the on the docket for like this month next month i want to have it open for the holidays this year it's been two years since we were like soft going to open and covid happened and i live in a small yeah. town with some people that aren't taking covid super seriously uh i have some PM people in my employment that are higher risk and so like we just kind of locked down uh but we've been pushing through troll and toad evo program anyway and our yeah. sales are uh, I mean, what we're going to do with the store is really v very minimal comparatively. Okay. So, like, we haven't been in a rush to open it. It's just kind of an extra revenue stream. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned Troll and Toad. Now, you've, you've been around for basically ever, right? How long have you been in, like, magic or the hobby industry at this point? Oh, boy. Um, so as a profession now, we'd be going on 13 years, 14 years. Uh, but I mean, from the age of like nine, 10, when I stepped in my first hobby shop, uh, I was just good at memorizing things and I loved reading through scry inquest, whatever. Yeah. And I would memorize the price list and go up to the card shop and I didn't really have much to trade with. Like I was, my family wasn't super well off. So I just learned how to like value my cards up. And then I went to my first GP and sold like $1,200 as like, you know, 10, 11 year old and was like very like, Oh, this is sweet. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to do this some more. And so I've been subsidizing part of my life with it since I was, you know, 12, probably on a regular basis and actually knew what I was doing. Uh, and that's how I got to know all these guys like Jeremy and stuff through like trolling to it back when it was the elite crew, right? You had Ogre and everybody it was back when they were on yeah. the commission system. 
so I started off selling to those guys and learning how to like buy and sell. And they would give me pointers on like, you know, hey, you can pick up played cards that are from this era, but like don't touch these newer played cards. And so, you know, you learn a lot of stuff from learning from vendors rather than learning from like a store owner or other players. And so that was kind of my upbringing. But yeah, as far as a full-time business, uh, I, I left school and decided to do this at 2021. 20, so yeah, 13-ish years and 33 now are going to be here short, shortly. So follow-up question, what was the better magazine and why was it InQuest? Okay, so <laughs> I should mention I started off on InQuest. Okay. And I think that's part of the reason I will always and forever be like a tier two magic player uh because the people who played who, who read scry were like getting these like very in-depth competitive yeah. decks for the time period right so like in quest every once in a while you'd be like oh this deck won worlds but then they would talk about like some other goofy build you could do with this deck to turn it into like a worse combo deck yeah but i love combo stuff so like reading through Inquest, they always had these like shitty two card three card combos on a, you know like two or three per uh, magazine and i live for those i wanted to build decks around those that definitely turned me on to being a combo player. Lotus Petal was my favorite card back then because oh, yeah. I couldn't afford Black Lotus, and that was like, you know, your, your cheap Lotus man's Petals version. the same thing. Right, yeah. I mean, if you can recycle them or anything like that, it's, it's all good. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so as soon as Storm became a mechanic, that that uh, really solidified that for me. But obviously, it was a number of years later. Uh, so you mentioned you're pushing through the Troll Evo system. What companies have you worked with now? I know you were with 95 for a little bit. Uh, worked with in the capacity of like worked for or like helped run booths. Uh, yes. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> so 95 is the only company I, I ran my own business for the first eight years and then 95 made me a job offer. So I went out and worked as the general manager there for two year contract. uh, parted ways with them, came back to do my own thing. I've been doing that for three years. So 95 is the only company I've officially worked for, but uh, as far as working booths, my goodness, I mean, just the primary ones that are still around that people know about, um, I mean, I've helped strikes on out before. I don't think I've worked for them in like an official capacity, uh, troll and toad, obviously, um, I've worked with Jeremy a couple of times. Um, Jeremy's great. Yeah. Jeremy's great. He's, he's one of my favorite people in this industry. Uh, who else? Uh, Bernie, uh, yeah. 95, obviously. Yeah. So like most of the major vendors at a GP, I will have like worked with, worked for in some capacity. Something. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of times it's even like, Hey, you're busy for a day that, so this industry is really inter interesting because like when you are getting into it, I spent the first four or five years never having been behind a booth and yeah. just grinding out GPs going there. I knew all the vendors, everybody knew who I was, knew I was trustworthy enough or whatnot. And then I think, I don't remember who I got my first break with, but they just needed help on a Saturday because they were really slammed. And they were like, hey, throw on a shirt and come, you know, jump behind the booth and help us. And other vendors saw me behind that booth. And then all of a sudden within that year, I was just offered gigs left and right. Like, hey, do you, you know, you want to run this booth? Do you want to, or well, not run, usually just doing buying mostly. I yeah. wasn't great on sales, obviously, with the whole, you know, being crippled thing. Uh, but uh, just, yeah, it kind of snowballs from there. But it's really inter interesting because I hear a lot of people talk about like, Oh, I, you know, how do you break into the industry? And I don't know if there's a good answer for that as far as on the vending end. You really just have to know somebody who knows somebody or get your shot by, like, nobody's going to walk in year one and be trusted by any vendor yeah. enough to put them behind your booth. Uh, and so it's really hard if you don't know somebody to, to kind of break into that scene, which is where all the real money is if you aren't, don't have the money on your own to flip things, right? Like, yeah. Being able to work for other people and doing GPs uh, or even smaller events is really a good way to bankroll yourself. It really is. Um, that's been one of the 
things that's kind of kept me in the industry, which, you know, this before we started here, uh, you said this question made me sad. What got you into the industry and why are you still in it? And I said, which part? And you said, yes. So yeah. now we're to that question. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, we're there already. Um, so what got me in this industry was uh, I was a civil engineer in a previous life. I spent all of high school pretty cooled off from magic. I went to the occasional GP to buy and sell, but I really like quit treating that like income. Uh, I had a full-time uh, engineering class that I was taking through my last two years of high school for the career center. And then I went off to college for it. I had an internship that turned into a job. Uh, that I graduated in 2006, 2007, they laid me off my first year of college. I ended up working for the college in their engineering department, and then they got rid of all their student engineers because 2008 happened, right? So housing market collapses, everything in engineering collapses, uh, a real bad time. And I was already kind of turned off to the industry anyway, just due to some corruption and things involved with that. Obviously every industry has it, but like, like I tell people, they're always like, well, you know, your industry is rife with it. I'm sure, you know, people moving money around. But at the end of the day, like nobody's really getting hurt by like buying and selling cardboard. So like I can morally live with myself. So, yeah, that, that was my departure from engineering. That was 21. I dropped out of college and started doing this as a side hustle. I had a job working retail for a year and uh, then just got into this because that's what I knew. I mean, that was really it. Like. I think had I collected baseball cards, I would have been the sports guy if I had, but I played magic and I yeah. was good at it. And I had traveled for magic already and I was very confident with the scene and I knew I could buy and sell these cards. And so I really wasn't going to be a full-time job for me. This was my thing between things. And, uh, yeah, I, I, here we are still 14 years later in the thing between things. And I've, you know, done a podcast, worked for a bunch of booths, run my own company. I still yeah. love it. Uh, and I think, the reason I'm still in it uh, to answer that part is because of how much it can change. So like this industry doesn't have to be any one thing uh, to begin with. I started off picking bulk. I know we'll get to this question. So I don't want to go too in depth, but uh, you know, I started off a very small scale, didn't have a lot of budget. Uh, it was just picking collections and like selling off what I could in smalls and like GP vendors were sometimes happy to see me because I'd have an ogre box before that was really a thing full of like just 25 cent cards and yeah. no one else at the GP was going to have those. So if you really wanted them, great. But otherwise you were just like wasting a bunch of time looking through boxes. So I acknowledge I was probably a pain in the ass back then. Uh, but yeah, so like I, I, I took that and I loved the treasure hunt behind that, right? Like there's nothing better than going through bulk and just like finding a dual land. It doesn't even have to yeah. be that, like even finding a shock land. You're just like, well, this shouldn't be in here. That pays for three rows of bulk. That's great. Right. And so when you're first starting out, that kind of stuff is really exciting. And I've just found ways, ways to scale that in the industry. So now it's like, well, I'm not going to excite, get excited about pulling a shock land out. But like when somebody comes and dusts off their old Pokemon collection and sells it to me and the first page I open, there's two, you know, first edition Charizards. Like, yeah, I'm going to pay them fairly on it. But that's still a treasure hunt to me. Like that stuff is out in the wild still. And it's crazy. It's like finding alpha cards. So uh, yeah. I, I've just found ways to adapt that over the years, even working for 95. Part of that was just, I was kind of bored plugging away. I'm really not a person who likes to do taxes or bookkeeping or any of that. I want to go get the cards. And I want to sell the cards. I'm very good at those things. Uh, and the organizing and micro or macro management of things. Uh, but I kind of got deterred from having to do all that big tax stuff when I got to be a bigger business and it wasn't just backpack trading. And so, yeah, I took the job with 95 and even that was just like a different ex exploration, right? I was going to get to travel over Japan and stuff like that, doing all these GPs, had a regular gig. 
Uh, plus, you know, a biweekly paycheck when you've uh, been a business owner for so many years is kind of a nice change. It's it's a nice to have that stability there. Have you what's what's your best shoebox find? Best like, shoebox find? Not necessarily literal shoebox, but the best like Okay. Mode. So I can think of two. Do you mean by today's value or do you mean by like at the time's value? At the time. At the time's value. Okay. So one of the best ones we had, and it wasn't a shoebox, but there was this guy who sold us a bunch of bulk. And he said there was a bunch of rares in it. And so we like we looked through two boxes, kind of got bamboozled because there was like some mixture of rares, but we like paid with like those two boxes of rares, right? And then there was like another hundred thousand commons on commons. And it was almost all newer stuff. And it just, it looked like we had paid way too much for this collection. I, he definitely knew what he was doing and set things up. Uh, we got down to the bottom though. And there was just two full four rows of P3K. Just set sorted alphabetized. Oh my God. So like, <laughs> yeah, that was that was one that was real. I, I, it definitely wasn't the highest value, but it was like one of those you're feeling real dejected. Because it was like legitimately two of the last boxes we hit. And everything yeah. else was like standard at the time. It just, it, it, yeah, we thought it was going to be much better than it turned out to be. And then other than those two boxes, um, but yeah, like actual shoebox find, there was somebody who sold me a Yu-Gi-Oh collection here recently, which we don't do a lot with Yu-Gi-Oh. So I just kind of like pay on it. Like it's mostly all bulk because I really don't want it. And if people want to sell it for that price, fine. Uh, and a lot of it was like jacked up and played. He had it, you know, rubber banded in Ziploc bags, and it was like two actual shoe boxes. And the guy was like, "Give me twenty bucks." And I'm like, "Well, I know I can get twenty dollars per thousand. There's probably at least a thousand undamaged cards in here, sure, because it was hollows and stuff, and it looked like some older stuff." Yeah. So I was going through that, and we found two pieces of Exodia. They were both a little beat up, but they were from some specialty set, not even the original. Um, and it's like a three hundred dollar and a four hundred dollar piece. Oh, so pretty good then. Yeah, I think that's probably the best shoebox find in the last, like, year or two. It might have been three years ago now. COVID's made time weird. That it has. Uh, that, that was a nice bookend, by the way. The last person I saw before COVID was you. you and the other half. And then yeah. the first person I saw after was the other half. So that was oh, a weird yeah, little bookend to that. So. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I forgot when she dropped all that stuff off for Galveston. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know that we were just talking about that because we were talking about, like, what was our last major outing right before COVID? And it was driving down. And, I mean, we weren't just down there to see you, but saw you and went out to to lunch there and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, feels like an eternity ago. It really does. Um, so you've been in the industry for a while. You've seen a lot of changes, a lot come and go company-wise. How do you feel about the state of it now? And what do you think is the biggest obstacle to long-term success like obviously the hobby industry isn't going anywhere but it has to adapt what what would it need to adapt to and how do you feel about how things stand now um so i think and this is i'm definitely a little biased as i've shifted into pokemon uh pokemon's code card system i wrote an entire like near essentially a thesis paper that i sent to, to wizards when i was trying to apply for jobs there forever ago now about and called it the 15th card and it was just literally like 20 pages about like different things they could do with a 15th card in the pack. And one of them was like blow up magic online, transfer all the cards over to an arena style system. This is before arena ever existed and create a code card system. So when I open a pack in real life, I'm incentivized to go like use that code card and, and do it online. And everyone's argument is always like, Oh, well you'll just tank the market. Well, Pokemon proves that's not true. They've been doing that now for 12 years or something like that. And it's wildly successful. They're moving to a new platform here in the next month or two. So, like, that'll be interesting to see how things change. But they're still doing the code card system. And 
I think that's a major part that the industry has to look at. So like magic's trying to get into the uh, digital realm, but I think when you go one foot in, one foot out, it really is going to hurt you a lot more than if you just dive in and say, here's the same experience you get in real life, but digital. And I don't think you cannibalize either one of those markets because people, the reality is people just want to play and people want to have situations in which they go and play with their friends and people want to have situations in which they can sit in their pajamas and sit at home and play. And so yeah. if you give them both of those options and make them work together rather than fighting each other, uh, I think you have a more successful ecosystem. And Magic is really at this position now, and they're really kind of screwing themselves, I think, with these recent cha- choices on Arena to make Arena-only cards. Because now you're just a bad Hearthstone. Because Hearthstone's yeah. done that for years, they've balanced that better, and they know what they're doing. And you're going to drive people that are willing to play your random game into a digital game that is better, rather than having people who are excited about Magic playing Magic and being able to play the same Magic on Arena as they are in real life, and it means something. I just feel like Arena is getting very gimmicky with what it's trying to do, and I don't think that's necessary. I think in the hobby industry, I mean, we, we show it. Like, the reason that sports and everything died back in the 80s was because of overprinting. It wasn't because of the excitement went away. More people were getting into it, which is why it was getting printed overly. Um, and I, I, I don't know how people haven't taken the fact that, like, this has been working already for 20, 30, 40 years now in the hobby industry and just realizing we don't need to reinvent the wheel. You just need to make the wheel keep up with the times. And that's it. Just don't don't cannibalize your two markets. But also you need to be in a digital space. Um, I don't know. Like, I know Flesh and Blood's really pushing to be a physical game only. And I think in the end that's going to be what sinks them. But I have my own opinions about that game. <laughs> yeah. I, it's, it's been interesting to see Flesh and Blood kind of like, I just thought it was, all right, here's a financial vehicle that like came out during COVID. We'll see how it plays. And, you know, if it plays when people can play the game again, it's probably going to die. And it seems like to me they've kind of, while Wizards has kind of done away with their competitive play program, it's been an opportunity for Flesh and Blood to just step in and be like, hey, look, we're the competitive game now. We have high payout. We have yeah. these great events for people to go to. I just don't know how sustainable that is long term. I mean, look at what happened with the WoW TCG. That game was incredible. Oh, yeah. But they couldn't keep up with the tournament structure because of the payouts. Right. And you had people like me gaming the system. It's like I got into WoW semi-professionally for a minute just because like the payouts were so absurd. Like I didn't even really know the game that well. I would just take whatever the best deck was, learn how to play that one deck. I didn't know my matchups, but it didn't matter. You go to Gen Con and you're going to win at least an iPod, even if you like scrub out because there's only 60 some players in this, you know, pay $50,000 tournament. Yeah. Uh, or whatever it was back when. Yeah, there was a lot of games that you could take advantage of that back in the day. That's what got me in the spoils. Uh, spoils was great. Spoils was great. But like the payout was great. I was playing in a tournament with like 40 people right off the bat for 5K. Like, heck yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think Flesh and Blood. And games like it. So Flesh and Blood, I think, has taken a better model than most games like it by, and like, obviously it's pure speculation, but there, there was some vehicle or motivation behind these cards be, being $10,000 on eBay and selling, right? Like, uh, whether or not that's nefarious or not, r- regardless of how you feel about that, uh, there's definitely an element of that's why the game is succeeding, right? Like, people know at any given time that these first edition cards... They can open, and yeah, they're probably not going to get the 10K that they see on eBay out of it because it's suspicious how some of those do and don't sell, but they're theoretically worth enough that somebody will pay them six. Yeah. Um, and that's that's great. Like, as a person who just wants your card game to pay for itself, which is really the inevitable of most hobbies, right? 
And that's another reason that goes back to that digital versus real life is like if you make those two work together, you're not cannibalizing the budget from one to the other. So like people are more willing to spend more money on the hobby if they feel like they're getting more out of it. But people do not want to pay for the same cards twice. And that's what Magic makes you do right now. Yeah, which is awful. In my it, it is awful. But I still think it's probably better than the flesh and blood model of we're not going to do online because we don't want to do online. Yeah. Like, I think everyone's realizing you have to have both. Like, look at Soulforge. I don't know if you've seen, they're making a physical card game with yep. what was only supposed to be an online card game, and they're somehow still going to make it work. I haven't demoed this, so I don't know anything about it. But I liked the online game. It just never got real traction, so I quit playing it. Yeah. Um, but I like that you're seeing even the digital games realizing, like, I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing some sort of Hearthstone variant. I think it's very difficult to do. Um, but but it's it's viable. Like, you can make some sort of variant. Unfortunately, I feel like it's going to suffer from the same thing Magic does if, like, one game is going to be very different than the other. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know. I've probably gone too, too in-depth <laughs> on that. <laughs> um, so what are, like, for you, business-wise, personally, whatever, obviously COVID was a big one and struggling with the store, trying to figure that out. What are some challenges in your 13, 14-plus-year career that you've overcome in the industry? And um, what really got you through those? the start of it for sure right so like i was a broke college kid i had like 600 dollars to start this up and that's why i was just buying bulk collections to flip it nothing is harder than making your first you know thousand and then ten thousand and hundred thousand that's what they say is like every time you have that zero and those mile markers it just gets easier and easier to make the next one um so yeah the beginning was definitely the hardest um outside of that like working with 95 there, there was just a lot of on the road physical elements that were like sometimes the exhaustion just hit, you know, doing three GPs back to back to back really gets you. Um, I mean, they tried to be good about not setting us up for those, but the first year we didn't really know how that was going to go. And we just, we were, it was that whole new bid system. And so everyone wanted to do as many GPs as you could. Yeah. Unfortunately, so you our crew was placement. fairly small. Yeah. So of course we were right in the front of the room, which meant we were extremely busy on top of being extremely exhausted. Which yeah. is better than being extremely tired and extremely slow. Yes. We all know that, too. Oh, you want to talk about a weekend dragging on. Uh, <laughs> sure, we've all had those experiences. For sure. Um, but, yeah, those are probably the two most difficult. Uh, learning how to navigate myself into retail is probably the next biggest. And I guess I haven't thought of that as a big challenge because it's been a very slow process. But learning how to, like, before, you know, I was binder grinding. I would just quick flip everything. And then you get to a point where it's like, well, I'm going to quick flip most things, but I know these things are going to go up. So I'm going to start holding like a banana stand. And that's nice because then you can start building that into being able to buy bigger collections when they come around. You can sell that stuff off if you need to. Um, and that's part of that, like growing 100,000, 10,000, whatever. Yeah. Um, but then the process of having to get to like, oh, I bought all these cards. I could sell them to a buy list and make 60% or whatever. And I bought them for 50%. I make my 10% or 20% or whatever in between. Or I can hold on to them and put them on my own retail site. And then you realize, well, unless I have a lot of things to put up, that's not really great. So you need to set up side like a lot of money before you really want to get into the retail end. And I have a lot of people like approach and ask about that. Like, how do I become a retailer? And I mean, first advice that we all probably give them is just don't, right? Yeah. It's I so do. much harder and your margins are so much smaller. When yep. you start paying other people and stuff, you, the money that Payment you have, and, yeah, uh, like I personally don't know that I made more money and I'm not talking about the business, but like personally made more money when I was just backpack trading back in my early days. Like, I mean, the market was also way different back then too. You could just clean up, but yeah, the amount of money you could walk away from in a weekend that was just overhead free and was yours was so much higher back then. Um, yeah, so yeah, I, just learning how to be a retailer has been much more difficult. 
I, I think that's the thing, too, is that a lot of people don't understand about the industry is when they look at an LGS, they're just like, oh, well, you pay 60 percent and you make like 30, you know, 30, 40 percent. I'm like, no, like I'll pay 60 percent on a card. TCG or whatever platform is going to eat 10 to 15 percent from fees. I have to pay somebody to sell it to you. I have to pay somebody to process it. I got to pay someone to do all this. And it's like, you know, once you have that retail space and you're in the retail, your margins are so much thinner than they are as a backpacker. Like yeah. it's it's absurd. Right. And you scale when you start scaling, like you've got to have people sorting this like you just there's an, no way to make yourself scale without increasing your costs. Yeah. One person can only do so much. And I know a number of backpack traders that are just like at the end of their rope because they haven't been willing to make that commitment. And honestly, you just burn yourself out. Like those guys leave the industry. They can be as successful as they want as a backpack trader. But if you can't make that next step, like you're either, it's either always going to be a hobby for you or you, you got to make that leap. Yeah. Uh, there's actually one of my friends is at that point now, and I think he's about to burn out. Um, so what, from any show, even as an attendee then, Okay. What is your favorite memory or interaction from a show? Attendee, vendor, whatever. Oh, man. <laughs> One favorite. Um, you can pick a couple. We, we don't have to be that specific. Okay. Um, so, I mean, there was the, like, driving out to Seattle last minute with my buddy from Michigan. We left on a Wednesday because we almost had enough points, and Seattle was the last GP that season. And so we drove out there. Uh, we did, mind you, we scrubbed out of this event. So, like, yeah. we just did not get our points. Was not worth at all. Drove out there, Iron Man out there, just the two of us. Iron Man it back. Um, we didn't really have money for extra hotel, and we both like had pseudo work, um, so we couldn't take a ton of time off. And uh, we got there, and we had plans to be staying with somebody, and they told us like they gave us the dates that they were gonna have the hotel for, and they're like, yeah, that's chill. If you guys are coming last minute, just let us know. Like, we'll have an extra room. Well, they told us the wrong date, so we thought we had a hotel for the day we got there. And uh, so we didn't, we didn't really have money for a hotel. Also, we didn't arrive until like 1 a.m. And so we ended up sleeping on the convention center roof because they had left the ladder down. And so that's just, amazing. Yeah, that was that was like a 19 year old Ryan in college still willing to climb ladders. Uh, so like that was that was like just a good time, right? Like we we imbibed a little bit on the roof and like passed out of course we had to be up at like 7 a.m because i don't know if you know about california or about uh, the west coast but uh seattle was still oh, quite yeah. warm yep. um Didn't i know that, that was california i think that was california actually where we slept on the yeah that was california where we slept at the convention center seattle was where we did the the one day all the way through they were two separate oh. trips okay. i apologize That's both okay. of them now like 13 years ago and with the same person uh, so there's that, uh, as a vendor there, there, there's been a lot of interactions really like some of the best ones that stick to your mind. And this is just sounds like wholesome or whatever, but there's nothing better than when somebody brings you a collection because we're also used to everybody being like, I want top dollar for this stuff. And like, you know, everybody thinks that they're a store. And again, you talk about that margin, people still understand, uh, but when somebody brings you a collection and they were like, this was my kids or this is, you know, mine from years ago. I've had this happen a number of times, so it's hard to hone in on one. But uh, oh, there no, there was one. There was, so there was a guy who like brought me his binder and was like, "I want to buy a gift at a." We were at an anime con. He's like, "I want to buy a gift for my girlfriend." And he was like, "I'm hoping to get like a hundred bucks for this binder or something like that." And I was like, "Okay, I'll take a look." And I just start flipping through, and it's just like everything from Shadow Moore, Laura, one era. 
And I mean, we're just talking like everything, four of all these cards. And I was like, listen, man, I, I, I could absolutely give you a hundred dollars for this binder, but like, if you have, you know, an, an hour, sit down with me, let me buy some singles. You're going to be very happy. And so I got to paint out the guy at like seven, $800. Plus he still had a bunch of cards left. And that's like a small version of the situation. But like, I've had other ones where like people have been able to like, you know, not necessarily just from the collection, but like pay back bills and like be able to like get their house back in order and things like that, or pay for renovations from collections that they just didn't think was worth anything. Uh, so those always stick in your mind of just like, remember those times when you actually get to help somebody. Cause most industries anymore, it's really rare that you genuinely get to help someone. And so like handing someone an extra five to $10,000 over what they thought they were going to be able to get is, uh, is not a bad feeling. No, for sure. And that's, I, it's, it kind of sucks that I feel like those moments have gotten fewer and far between because there's so much information available now price wise that people just all do the research, but like, well, I think and it's the last... bad information too, right? So, like, it's not that the information's available, because most people who know about Pokemon still don't know about TCG Player, and they might not even know to look on eBay. A lot of them just go, oh, this looks like the Charizard that was in that Vox article, or that was in that, you know, whatever article. Like, I have a $10,000 Charizard, and I'm like, you don't, though. You have a $200 Charizard. Yeah. And people are like, you're a filthy liar, I'm not going to sell anything, and I'm going to blow you up on Yelp. And you're like, well, that's that's cool, but you still have a $200 Charizard. Um, so I think it's double-edged there. I think the mainstream media pushing the market is bad, but I think the people knowing where to go look for the price of their carts who are in the industry is good. I wish that there was an easier way to reroute people to pricing centers over the, the you know, clickbait articles they find. Cause like in the clickbait article, their job is to get those people to read it. And nobody's yeah. going to be excited if they think that their chars are worth 30 bucks. Yeah. They're not there to educate. They're more there to just word vomit than anything else and i think that's right yeah, that's and it's it, it kind of sucks because especially with you know pokemon my experience is obviously it's not as much little kids anymore as it used to be right but the clientele is significantly younger than your average magic player where yeah. you're looking at like late 20s early 30s so there's still that element of like almost wanting to like take care of them and make sure that they're not getting ripped off but yeah. sometimes they still get ripped off through their own ignorance and it's like that just feels bad as a better well, and especially in our in Pokemon, there's just a lot more of dealing with fakes than there is in Magic. Like, there's always fakes in Magic, but um, the 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 plus side is Pokemon fakes tend to be much worse quality, so like they're very easy to identify. Um, but whereas in like you know good old vintage Magic fakes, like there's some that we've like stood around huddled as vendors and been like, well, I can't 100% say that it's not real. Yeah, and that's that's when you know the industry has like gotten to a point where it's kind of scary. And I mean, I feel like I'm quite good at identifying fakes and Magic. And in Pokemon, it's a breeze. Like they, they the technology is not. I think part of it's their foiling pattern is very hard to re replicate for some of it. But like the industry just hasn't tried as hard. Um, there's a lot of proxies out there and stuff, but they're all identifiable. But when you go and like, just see pictures of a collection, they're not always identifiable, especially when you're talking about those vintage cards. So until you see them in person, and so like sometimes, you know, you tell somebody, oh, I'll pay you 1500 assuming, you know, condition, and then you get there and like their top six cards are all fake and you got to break that to them. That's, that's a little rough. Uh, yeah. That's, that's always been for me, like one of the hardest things to break to someone is like, you know, Hey, I, I, I think this may be fake or yeah. something when it's like you know there there have been people where they've been i've just refused to buy it because i didn't want to say anything to them like with a bunch of their friends around or anything i'm just like hey i'm gonna pass on this and they're like yeah why? just not comfortable buying it well why not it's like all right well if you're just gonna beat it out of me i'm just gonna like 
be the bearer of bad news. That's not great. But sometimes, you know, you have to be. And I know for like pseudo liability purposes at GPs, we weren't really supposed to tell people that their cards are fake. Because then, like, if they destroy it and it's real or whatever, obviously they could probably come back on you. I think it's pretty loose. Like, you'd have a tough time taking that to court. But just most of your bosses are going to tell you, just, like, don't do not do it. And so there's yeah. always that that awkward, like, yeah, I'm not really comfortable buying this or I'm not really interested. And usually I just tell them, like, oh, we just bought a vintage collection earlier this, you know, at this show. And we spent a bu- we spent our whole vintage collection. We're just our, – our budget, we're vintage only looking budget, for, yeah. like, certain pieces at this point. And that's just not what we're looking for. Um so yeah, I mean, yeah, vendors lie to you. Woo, sorry. We, we, we do it. We yeah. kind of have to sometimes. Yeah, it's it, like beyond liability also, it's just like one of those like I need my interactions at shows to be as short as possible. And I don't mean that in like a negative way, but like there are so many customers you have to deal with. And like a lot of customers don't understand that when you're talking about a booth setting versus a retail setting, like a retail setting, each individual store has so enough employees to be able to you know, they've broken down the numbers for how many people should be engaged at any one time. Well, behind the booth, yeah. you never know. And it ebbs and flows so much. You can't have enough employees back there to cover you when you're super busy because you're just going to have half of your employees doing nothing for 90% of the weekend. And so sometimes we just got to, like, move on to the next person. And yeah, that's that's always an awkward situation to deal with, too. Uh, so last question. Already? Oh, no. Yes. What is your biggest piece of advice to someone? Not just starting out any point in their career if there's one grain of knowledge that you could drop to anyone in the industry what would it be use technology like this industry is 10 to 15 years behind use technology if you don't know how to use spreadsheets what are you doing with your life uh, in general not just yeah, in the hobby yeah but like uh, you remember like when word and Excel proficiency was like, the thing you wrote on uh, interviews. So like I got laughed at a couple of times because I used to write Google proficient. And now yeah. that is like so much more important than knowing the other things because you should know how to do those other things because they're just taught to you. Um, yeah. But yeah, just, just knowing how to use technology. Um, hopefully I'll be able to come back on here in the next few years and talk about some of this technology. But yeah, like uh the, I think the industry is going to make some big leaps and bounds. We've already seen a lot of the the robots and machines. I don't think anybody's doing it perfectly right. Uh, I have some of my own concepts and ideas behind that. But, uh, yeah, we're going to catch up on the physical technology, but there's still just so much space that's unexplored in this industry. And not, not just card gaming, but just tech and hobby in general. And a big part of that comes from the fact that, like, your old guard, and I'm talking about, like, Jeremy's era, but even the older guard than that. Like So, like, the guys who were sports cards guys – before anything else and that was all they did was like maybe had like a model shop and carried sports cards and then they just ebbed and flowed with the time and kept up because a lot of those guys have left the industry but as long as they're around uh it feels like enough of them aren't willing to use the technology the the industry is hobbled by that because you really need the industry overall to change to this technology for it to really be effective and yeah i mean i think that's what we're going to see in the next 10 15 years is more of those people retire and the car the game the whole hobby industry becomes more dynamic because we're starting to see a lot more cross game vendors than we used to so like you had vendors that would do the big three and or would just focus on card games and stuff but now there's so many people like branching into doing funkos and also comics and all these other things they're becoming much more like lgs's online where you do have all everything in stock you don't just go to this one website to get your magic cards and as that happens, you're going to drive more and more of those other people out of the industry. And But also at the same time, you're going to need more and more technology to keep up with that as a store. You need to know what's in your inventory at all times and not just a random POS system. Um, 
Yeah, and there's a lot of other space that tech can be used, but um, even just like identifying fakes, grading cards, things like that. Like that's all technology I'm interested in working with and I've been working on. Um, but yeah, I think that's the biggest, use as much technology as you can. And if you're a tech-based person who's semi-interested in this, you can probably go a long ways with just building tools for stores because so many people need it and, and want it. I mean, even just looking at the TCG scanner, not that TCG is the best platform to sell on, uh, wish there was more competition, but the TCG scanner just in like the last two years has even gotten better at identifying cards. And right. I know like Harry's in love with the thing. He thinks it's yeah. great. Keenan is in love with the thing. He thinks it's great. But a year and a half ago, they were like, oh, this thing's trash. I'm not touching it. Yeah. So like seeing, you know, the younger, like you said, that young Vanguard, like, Calf was kind of like one of the first guys, along with Bernie, that oh, was Calf's like, great. Yeah. we'll buy anything. You, yeah. you can bring us a used ketchup bottle and we'll give you a number on it and we'll find something for it. Right. And it's seeing that change now start to happen in the industry is one of the things that's keeping me invested in it. Because you do right. have that old guard starting to kind of like fade away. Almost, right. like you said, retire. We're just the stepping back as like silent owners and letting someone else who understands the industry more run the current industry. Yeah, I, I think that it, we're we're definitely at a change of the guard. Not, I don't think it's going to be quite as brutal as like you know the eighties, nineties for sports cards. I'm hoping, but I, I think we are going to see a lot of people shifting. COVID was an interesting one too, right? Because you really saw like the companies that survived were the ones who went back to our roots and were like, okay, we know how to backpack trade, we know how to buy collections off of Facebook, <laughs> Craigslist, eBay, wherever it is. I, I would just went back to what I did five, 10 years ago. And crazy enough, it was very successful on top of everyone wanted to sell their collections during COVID. So it worked out quite well. Um, yeah. And then I think piece of advice number two, which is probably a little more relevant to the majority of people is be willing to take, and I'm putting this in quotes, a loss yeah. um, on certain product. And when I say that, what I mean is like, you were talking about earlier about like an LGS, right? Somebody brings you a collection and you buy it. And, you know, we understand there's all those extra costs involved with it. But at the end of the day, there's also a certain percentage of those cards if you're not selling online, even if you are selling online. Like, I've got a TCG stock. Some of these cards have been here two years, three years, just because they're so niche or you just, like, don't want to reprice that random foreign card or whatever that you bought in a collection. There's a lot of dead stock. And when somebody comes along and offers you a number, even if it might sound insulting just because, oh, it's not the percentage I would normally pay or whatever. If they're taking stuff off of you that you've had in stock for two years and somewhat been diligently trying to sell, take the number. Yeah. Because not only are you are decluttering your inventory and you're making things much more streamlined for yourself, which will save you money in the long run because you're not looking through that card every time somebody's going through TCG player to pull orders but you're also making some amount of money that you can turn around faster than you could if that card does sell for the price that you want in two years from now. Uh, so yeah, like a big one is just be willing to be dynamic and take a loss. I, I think one of the biggest things is with that, that an example that I think everyone can understand is, all right, would you rather have a nether void or the equivalent of nether void in fetch lands? One of those is clearly strictly better, right? And it's the fetch lands because they'll sell right away. Yeah. Whereas the Nether Void, sure, it looks cool and it's worth a lot of money, but I'd much rather have the money now in hand to return into another investment almost right. immediately than like something that's going to sit in the case and, you know, maybe it right. lose on TCG, maybe it doesn't. Like so. as a player, my vendor self kicks myself for trying to, I'm still selling parts of my old collection because it's Japanese foil. 
Yeah, yeah. It's like you know, a Japanese and German foil. Like, well, why, why wouldn't I completely build Spanish Inquisition to only play one time fully Japanese foiled? Because that sounds like a good thing I should do. I, I still have the years. Oh, that's right. You bought those off me, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I'm glad part of that deck's still around. Like, I still have the garbage in a box right here next to me, actually. But sure. yeah, yeah, it makes me sad that I only got to play it once. But at the same time, like, don't don't buy that kind of stuff. Um. Yeah, and as as a vendor, too, more pieces of information, right? If you're a smaller vendor, if you're a bigger vendor, it's okay for you to tie up your money if you're getting that stuff cheap enough because you know you'll roll it in, you'll make the money over time, and it's not really going to impact your bottom line. When you're first starting out, do not touch that stuff. Just, yeah. like, pass. It doesn't matter how good the number is. Unless you know you have it pre-sold, pass. It, it just, it's not a good idea. You will tie your money up, and you will regret it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Mr. CC. Appreciate you sitting down with us. Yeah, Hopefully no before too long, we'll be able to talk to you about something else going on in the industry. Yeah. But we'll see. Uh, yeah. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Appreciate you listening. I appreciate it. Pick time. You ready? Yep. Let's do it. All I'm right. going first. Yep. All right. So there's been a few things that I've touched on recently in picks, be it the From the Vault Tangle Wire or Urza Saga. Stuff like that. Modern metagame is shifting. We're seeing price trends and foils by waves go through. Obviously, the masterpieces and stuff have started skyrocketing. They're never coming back down. Never. So the next wave, and this is something I touched on in my Tangle Wire pick, I think is from the Vault foils. Specifically, I'm going with from the Vault Zurinorb. Why now? Well, if you take a look at the stocks graph, we're on a downtrend, which is always good. We are also, if you take a look at TCG Player, and this is incredibly bizarre, the buy list market price on this card right now at the time of recording is 826. TCG low, 925 with shipping. So we're only a dollar above the buy list price, which to me says we're due for a correction before too long. This is a unique art, and this is something that if you've been running any leagues or anything on Moto, you've probably run into the green white value town decks running Urza Saga along with Titania and Zernorb, because it's just a really good combo. Not only that, it's obviously, if you take a look at EDH Rec, incredibly popular in your Titania lists. It's just a really good value engine in those decks. It's something that, reprint-wise, I don't feel like it has a lot of equity now that we got it in Modern Horizons 2. It's not high-impact enough of a card that we're going to see a mass reprint of this anytime soon, I would think. Additionally, the nice thing about the From the Vault is that it is completely unique art. So I was kind of concerned when I saw the MH2 spoilers that we would get this art again. Nope, it's similar, but, but not the same. Yeah. Same artist, I believe, Ryan. Yep, same artist, but different art. So this has a number of things going for it, in addition to the fact that we've seen a price spike in this card before. This was last year, it hit about $40 when a bunch of the From the Vaults got bought out for the first time on singles. Spiked, we had the floor reset. Yep. Then we just came off a spike earlier this year, like January, February, and we're starting to see a new floor hit. And we always harp on buy into the dip, sell into the spike. So right now we're in the dip on this card. And especially with what we're seeing between the buy list median and TCG low right now, it's an incredibly good time to get it. Now, we do have 70 listings. The interesting thing about this, and I think this is true of all of the From the Vault Relics cards, there's not a whole lot of sealed From the Vault Relics around. 
I mean, that that was probably the best from the vault that we ever had. You know, we had Mox Diamond, we had Memory Jar, Nest Cards, Disc. Silver Golem. Yeah. Three reserveless cards right there. Yeah, that are just absolute bangers. So these all got opened, and there's a ton of them on the marketplace singles-wise. We don't have a whole lot of stock sitting back, I would think. I don't at think all. so. So this, what we have, this, this is what we got. So these 70 or whatever on TCG right now, and it very quickly goes from 9 to 10 to $12 for near mint. Uh, by page 3, we're looking at about $13, $14, $15 for these. I think this is going to be one of those cards that's going to be a slow burn. Yep. But I think that once it takes off, it's gone. As far as timeline goes, and again, I hate to keep saying this, this kind of depends on how paper events do. Uh, as we get more paper events, obviously we have not Grand Prix Vegas that's in Vegas. Yeah. Hosted MTG, by Jim Fireball. Is it MTG Vegas or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. MTG Vegas. Uh, that they're requiring vaccine cards and everything. Same with SCG Con. If those events go well, and all of a sudden we do see an explosion of large events where we're like, all right, cool, we're going for it. This card's timeline is going to shorten significantly, I think. Because you'll start to get more exposure, you'll start to see people at EDH events again, and you'll start to see people want to get back to maybe upgrading some of the cards that they downgraded during quarantine. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'd say probably, realistically, we had between the last spike, it's a pretty long time, it was like three years. I think that window gets shorter, though, because mm -hmm. we're seeing more rapid and rapid movement in these waves and price trends in the market. So we had the you know, star foils take off. I would not be surprised if we see from the vaults take off during tax season, which is of course going to be the next price boom when everyone gets They're tax returns yeah. and dumps them into duels or whatever else. Uh, from the vaults are kind of, you know, in the territory of when we talk about soft reserve list, it's a soft reserve list. You're not going to get this card with this foiling. It's pretty unique. Yep. Uh, Great. To speak on the from the vaults, I wanted to check because I knew this one was an early one. I thought it was the second. It's the third. Not like that makes a whole lot of difference when you're talking about the early days of this product. The one prior was Exiled that has like Berserk and Kurt Ape and stuff. But yeah. the print run on these is abysmally low. Yeah. I it's it's brutal and especially when you think about like all right, well the value in this is clearly tied up in your Mox Diamonds, you know your Memory Jars stuff like that. Yeah, sure. Whatever. This is another one of those examples of here's the low hanging fruit. Like when I picked the invocation divert, you know, I said, this is our low hanging fruit. This is the thing that's probably going to go up last once everything else dries up. And once it goes, well, you're going to make plenty of money. You know, the divert right now, I think when I picked it, it was like $10. We're sitting at about 30 bucks right now. Mm -hmm. So I would say price trend wise, you're probably looking at something similar with Zernorb. Right now it's around ten bucks. I think once it hits again, because it is power level wise, it's not quite as good as some of the other cards in this from the vault. I think it'll be sitting at around thirty dollars is what you'll see it at, and I'd expect around tax time is when we get there. Yeah. The the only thing that I have um a problem with is that this car this card is kind of invisible unless you're looking to do some very specific things uh we were talking about this before the cast and when i think of zern orb i just think of the bygone days of vintage when they released crucible of worlds so you yeah. play fast bond zern or crucible of world and gain infinite life and that's what this card reminds me if it doesn't make me think of anything overpowering 
I didn't even think about this with Urza Saga. Yeah. That you go get this with Urza Saga and how, how well it works with uh, Titania and some other odds and ends. And I think that concern is kind of uh, assuaged when commander events come back and we can start seeing in paper play and as people pick up a lot more of the MH2 stock to play either on camera or in person. And eventually we will see that bump overall for Zern Orb. And like you said, this is low-hanging fruit right now, both in terms of the From the Vault and upgrades for that deck if you want to go foil. Um, I don't remember... The foils for this set are a little awkward. They have that... Uh, I don't think they have actually a Pringle issue. It's just these are all artifacts in the foil style. So for some people, it's kind of a taste issue. But other than that, the, I mean, the invocations and the mask pieces sold well or do sell well so it's not like this card also won't disappear off the market in time so as low-hanging fruit i definitely like this as a pick um and i i think the timeline is, is perfectly fine on this i guess the only question i have is have you given any thought to how many you would want to pick up yeah so on this stuff like this when it's like ten dollars i generally go for the hundred dollars or less rule okay so i'm wanting to pick up you know nine to ten like seek out nine to ten somewhere in there yep. if one makes its way in a trade and that's to even it out that's fine mm -hmm. because i don't really think like on something like this even you know with the release of mh2 once it got spoiled we only lost about 20 percent of the value on this card mm -hmm. so it's not like you're going to get hoisted on it at this point because we're you know 10 bucks sure yeah you know you're going to lose another two dollars a piece at worst on a reprint who knows how long down the line because we were like i think seven eight years between reprints of the card between the from the vault and modern horizons 2 Maybe so longer, yeah yeah i i just i'd be looking at about around ten dollars and that's only because at a certain point i'm like all right i'd rather invest this in you know fetch lands or shock lands or something obviously yep what if i told you almost to, to the date 11 years good lord august 2010 was from the vault relics i tie that <laughs> for some reason i tie that from the vault to new phyrexia but it's not it's tied to um scars of mirrodin because it had sort of body in mind in it that's right yeah you could own that card before the set released if you bought yep. from the vault uh relics uh, a bite an awkward and thankfully no longer used method of introducing cards in the main set to the ecosystem yeah, Micaeus was a hit. Yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, for my pick, I'm also driving down that EDH path, uh, slightly elvish, touching on a card that you talked about a while ago in Tyvar Kelp. So as I was uh, re-upping, I I liked it when you made when you made mention of it, and I you know I'm gonna like this card till the day I die. And so I was just re-upping my my picks, checking out some hot lists, and Tyvar Kelp hit this. kind of whatever but as we mentioned in your pick we, we this is where we want to buy in right now card kingdom is buying about 68 69 of these for $3.50 TCG marketplace at LP are better 311 at $4.41 but one of the the main reason why I picked it this week is because you could actually arbitrage a handful of these from TCG players straight to card kingdom for close to a dollar and change in credit which 
isn't bad overall. Uh, and that's after shipping on uh, the cards on TCG Player. So the Tyvar Kel is pretty limited in terms of what it does. It plays an Elf Tribal, or if you want to be spicy, Changelings. But the idea of Elf Tribal isn't as narrow as you might think, uh, which is actually something that I learned in this research. So and I'll bring up Rec to kind of prove it. So uh, this is narrow in use overall you're essentially, because you're essentially locked into tribal elves, but you can meme around with changelings, as I mentioned, and the draw is that there are a large number of ways to really build your elf deck in EDH. You're always green, and the passive is never wasted as long as you don't have mono land wars on board. If all your elves just naturally tap for green mana, then the passive kind of, kind of hoists you. Uh, the, the plus one lets you do some neat things with large mana elves because it untaps an elf. So things like Priest of Titania, Elvish Archdruid, Wirewood Channel. Uh, Wirewood Channel lets you untap and reuse again. And the zero lets you restart, essentially, by dropping another elf warrior into play. So it becomes a landmark, right? So as an elf player, one of the things you never want to have happen to you in EDH is just a large board get wiped out because it's very difficult to restart. This card allows you to do that by zeroing. And the emblem allows you to, uh, like, well, what we like, what we like to say in the combo world, re-go. Yeah. So you you do your thing. Um, you know, you you just essentially blow out with uh, the emblem. You've drawn a bunch of cards, play everything out. You don't have the kill com because you don't have haste for whatever reason, or you don't have crater huff, etc. Somebody wipes your board, but you have the emblem. So a single elf allows you to re-go because you're not just drawing one card anymore, you're drawing two off of this emblem, right? Pretty good. Yeah, and you draw two cards, and it gives all your elves haste. So uh, it allows you to, to re-go with a combo finish. Essentially, there's no ability that isn't great for an elf deck, and as this enters with three loyalty and ultimates at six, it threatens the end of the game very quickly. And... In the course of my investigation, apparently elves have a small presence in Historic with Tyvark Elf. So that's a thing. The timeline for this, uh, I believe we've hit the lowest price, so we should see uh, that we should see for this card in the foreseeable future as commander interest should float the, uh, float the price. And I want to be buying into this plateau and at approximately $4, $55 each, I'd be happy holding 20 which is essentially that $100 number that you mentioned, and trading these out until demand picks up in time. To resell for a profit, I think we're looking at about nine months to a year, and if you're looking to sell the buy list, I would say it would be closer to a year. I think what we just saw on the Card Kingdom buy list is going to disappear pretty quickly. Uh, that arbitrage is going to disappear, then the open market will kind of take over and, and the price will run away. And as CK just loses stock, that's when we'll eventually see the buy list catch back up. So there's a small opportunity for arbitrage, as I mentioned. And I I really don't think that any version of Tyvarkel is going to be arbitrageable. So that's for reference. Set, full art, and promo, the promo pack. So I don't think we're going to be able to arbitrage any of that for the next uh, after this opportunity disappears for the next year. I do think this could see a spike, though, if it were to show up on a Commander content series and do 
any kind of work. It just has okay. to do something. Anything at all. Because as I mentioned, everything about this card top down is great for elves. So you, if somebody casts it and taps a priest of Titania, untaps it and just dumps a bunch of elves on the battlefield, that's all you need. All you need is somebody use, to use the plus one on this card. And it, it just takes off. And at that point in time, I'd be extremely happy to have bought in now at the 450 to $5 price range. I thought maybe we could see this dip to three, but I really don't think the commander that commander players are going to let this happen, and I don't think we are going to see it dip that much low that much lower than it is now. Maybe four dollars is the absolute floor. Yeah, I I think for me the thing that's really interesting when looking at this card is how narrow the foil delta is on this, even on the borderless. So the cheapest borderless is five twenty five for foil. Yep, and 375 for non-foil and that's like for an edh card like that uh you know that's incredible to me because usually your foil margins on edh tables are just ridiculous mm -hmm. so it's it's i you know when i mentioned this card i said i i love this card i think this card is great it fits elf ball combo if you want to go that route with like wrists or something because you know you're minus six you're double glimpse of nature yeah. seems pretty good and it does the mid-range thing. If you want to go that route where you make a bunch of dudes, you make them bigger, and you pump them somehow with a mana sink. Mm -hmm. Like, this this does literally everything you want within the tribe. It gives you card advantage, which in green is not always easy to come by, especially, like, outside of Sylvan Library and EDH, you basically have to run Garrick. Well, here's another way you can do this, because yeah. you just draw a bunch of cards from playing dudes. Yeah, uh, it it's harder with elves, and I think that's actually the point you're trying to make. You can't just, like, jam, what is it, like, Rishkar's expertise or something like that and expect to draw a bunch of cards, because all your elves are, like, one to three power. So you need supplemental things. So Sylvan Library, uh, Garuk, like you mentioned. Um, on eyes. Yeah. Like, that's there's, the there's not a lot of options. But, you know, then the untap is huge, because getting an extra Aquarian Ranger activation pretty good when you're going off in an elf deck yep. so i i you know like i said when i mentioned this card i think this card is incredible i think it's going to be long term one of the best financial gainers out of call time hands down i and ev even if it does end up being a year waiting fine mm -hmm. i happily sit on 20 of these things for a year and double my money yeah no problem because i it's to me it's one of those cards that is that much of a sure thing that there's no reason not to go for it. Yeah, there's so many unique and strategy-defining abilities placed on this card that a reprint of something or a new card that does one thing will outshine what this card does overall because it just does so much. And to talk about the foil delta, it's kind of interesting overall with anything, any of the standards that have been printed recently. Uh, I was looking at Unnatural Growth the other day, and fo set foil and set non-foil are almost the same price right now. Yeah. So if you are the kind of person that wants to pick up foil, then you know by all means, this is still your time. It's still your opportunity. Anything that's been out in the standard set in the last year or so, the deltas are small enough where you know just move on in. The only issue is you're selling into a smaller niche. That's it. You know. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think there's any any problem doing that. If I were going to be buying foils, it'd probably be uh, foil borderless, uh, the Altar borderless, whatever it is. Um, yeah. Just because it's more unique, so it's like the pimper version, and I'd probably I'd go uh, shorter shorter on that than I would set foils. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
because at that point you're buying for EDH and they only need one copy. You know. Yeah. Exactly. And again, it's you're you're shrinking your audience when you do that too. So you you know keep that in mind. Uh, I I was thinking about this and I was just like, you know, this is the kind of card that I, I don't think it's gonna be the standard play because we don't get a whole lot of elves and it's not like elves gets a whole lot of new tech over time it usually gets a new general or something to put in place and that kind of secures this card and at the same time gives it opportunity to shine in more places because they keep making new elf generals so you keep getting to do something new or different with your elf deck you could be all in on the crater hoof plan you could be doing elf tokens uh you could just be playing like uh, value X spells or something like that. It doesn't matter. Like when I played Elves and EDH, I played Rift, so I was playing Naya, and I had a Comet Storm kill as a backup plan. Like you can take Elves any number of ways, and to me that makes something like this much, much, more, much more appealing than some of the Nissas that could fit in the deck. Uh, the one that has the Mana Flare, uh, the Forest yeah. Flare passive, not that great. The first Nissa, absolute garbage. And some of the others in between just are not great in elf-themed decks. But Tyvar Kel speaks to that tribe. And Jinjin. Yeah. And I, I think it it the nice thing, and this is something I harp on about EDH picks, is it does so much that not only does it hit the casual side, it does hit the competitive side as well by having double elf ball. Yeah. Uh, so it, it hits a wide gamut of EDH stuff because it's still very cost efficient for yeah. what it does. I mean, we so. we were really just one Dana Fisher feature match away from this card actually breaking out in modern too. So like, yeah, there is that opportunity soon. Yeah, maybe uh, MTG Vegas. MTG. MTG That's Olympic. the hope, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, twenty-five K events. Why not? Yeah. Uh, I'm good for this week though. If you are. All right, so we are at MTG Cabalcast on Twitter, Patreon, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find the podcast on Audible, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. I am at Hulk. I am Reptar on Twitter. You are at Thirsty Sizzler. We'll see you next week.